Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 20. Before we begin looking at God's word, let's look to him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word before us. We give you thanks and praise for your Holy Spirit in us and among us. And we pray, Father, as we pay particular attention to this portion of your word, that we would indeed see the gospel as being not only a message from you announcing good news, but also your power to change us. Oh, Father, be pleased now as we all sit under your word to be both informed and transformed through your word and by your spirit, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, Paul and some of his teammates were up all night, right, in Troas. Paul was just getting started, and, it, and that young man, Eutychus, fell out of the third story window and died. And the Lord used Paul to bring him back to life. What what a night before the ships set sail, right? Uh, those of you know that I've been in the Navy, and it was sometimes really hard to get sailors ready to go back to sea because they had just spent a whole night not in God's Word, not seeing an extraordinary moment of encouragement. No, they were doing other things but here we see in our text, Paul and his companions getting ready to travel. I want to read now verses um, 13 through 17, because it's a travelogue. It's a description of sailing in the Mediterranean from Troas down the coast of Asia Minor to Miletus. And as we read, think about this, that in that day, you, you only sailed in the daytime because there was no wind at night, and you had to put into another port, and then the same thing happened the next day. The winds picked up, and you sailed, and then you went back into port. So let's listen to this description that Luke provides, beginning in verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had... For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So everybody but Paul gets on the ship, and Paul takes a walk alone for 20 miles. The text doesn't tell us why. Um, was it because he just wanted to reflect and think and pray? We don't know, but we know that he rendezvoused with his team in Essos. I think that just gives us a little bit of historical detail. It, it, it's just another way to say scripture is true and accurate. 
Did you hear all those place names, those geographic names, very familiar to the audience that Luke would be writing to this Roman audience? We heard Assos, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, taught there for three years. We heard of Chios. We Many believe that it's the birthplace of the Greek author, the literature of, uh, of Homer. And we get to Samos. It's the birthplace of none other than Pythagoras, the Greek philosopher and mathematician. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. It's interesting that the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel kind of coincides with historical places and events. It's, it's happening in real time. This is what's going on at one point in those places. And they end up in Miletus, a port 30 miles south of Ephesus. And most likely they're stopping there because the ship needs to, to uh, a couple of days to unload its cargo and load up again before it heads out as Paul wants to get to, um, to um, Jerusalem. But now, remember, Paul had a ministry of, what, three years in Ephesus. At least two years, three months, probably more. Three years. It was where he stayed the longest. It was a ministry hub for all of Asia Minor. And so he's going to send for the elders to come to him. He's not going to go to Ephesus. I think maybe is he remembering what happened there the last time he was there? The, the uproar that happened? He, he, he wants the leaders of the church so to come to him so he can have a farewell speech. Now this is one of three major speeches of Paul in Acts. Uh, he speaks to the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia in chapter 13, to the Gentiles in Athens in chapter 17, and now to Christians, to, to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And this farewell speech is, is, is broken into two parts. Today we're going to look at part one, verses 18 through 27. It's, it's an autobiography of sorts. It's his defense and notice it's in the indicative. He's going to make a lot of statements. And then when we get to part two, verses 28 through 35, it's going to be his charge to the Ephesian elders. It's the imperative. It's the commands. So here you see Paul's statements about himself. And then when we look at his charge to the, to the Ephesian elders, it'll be what you are called to do. So we're going to look today at part one of his speech. Paul talks about himself. Can you believe it? In these verses, in this first part of the speech, at least 20 times, Paul uses the, the first person, personal, singular pronoun, I, me, myself. What? I thought we weren't supposed to talk about ourselves. Here's Paul talking about himself. And the two questions are this, what? does he say about himself and why does he say what he says about himself? Well, what does he say about himself? We'll get to that in a moment. But first, why does he spend so much time talking about himself? The title of today's sermon captures it, to defend himself and his ministry. Now, Christians, every Christian has a defense attorney against the accusations of Satan, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christians do have a model when it comes to defending themselves. Peter writes in his first letter this, when Jesus was reviled, 
he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Well, here, Paul is indeed entrusting himself to him who judges justly, but, Paul, but God obviously has called Paul to speak, to speak about his life, to speak about his ministry. Paul is not trusting, as we will see in his own words, he's trusting the Lord, and the Lord has obviously called him to speak. He's speaking up in his own defense. And why would he need to talk about himself to defend himself in his ministry? Because Paul knows that if the messenger can be discredited, so can the message. And by God's enabling grace, Paul is not going to let that happen. So for the next few minutes, we're going to unpack and explore this first part of Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. And in it, Paul will reveal both the attitude of his heart and the action of his hands, so to speak. His attitude and his actions are going to be wrapped together in one package. But for our purposes today in growing in our understanding of the informing and transforming word of God, we're going to speak first of one and then the other. And then we may go back to the first one and then go back to the second one. They are distinct, but his attitude and his actions really are inseparable. So let's listen to this first part of Paul's speech. And with these words of introduction beginning in 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's a farewell speech. Paul is saying, remember me. This is the first point. Remember me. Remember who I am. Remember who I am. It's the person of Paul. Verse 18, you know, you know. I've been told a number of times that ministry in general and preaching in particular is reminding people what they already know. 
Don't we forget so often? We need to be reminded of what we already know. Paul says, you know. I'm reminding you what you already know. I've been your pastor. I've been the church planter. I've been your pastor. And and you've been among the people that I've loved and served. It's important to remember as you think about Paul and his letters to the churches, but the, the relationship between pastor and people between elders and people are are, are two-way streets. The pastor wants to care for the people and the people want to be cared for. It's a two-way street. Remember, Thessalonica was one of the first cities he went to. Remember? And this is how he described his ministry there in his letter. He's he's reminding them of of what they already know. But we were gentle among you. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. Paul says to them, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul writes the church in Corinth in his second letter, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Do you see the vulnerability of Paul and the others? Their hearts are wide open. They're sharing not just the gospel, the good news, they're sharing their very lives. Paul is saying, I've been with you for three years. You know me. You know me. Knowing and being known. It's risky, isn't it? You open up your heart wide to somebody and they can crush you. And that happens to Paul at times, right? But it's worth the risk. Why? Because Paul is secure in Jesus. Paul really takes to heart the passage in Proverbs that the fear of man proves to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Paul is safe because of his relationship with Jesus. Remember who I am. Remember me, he says. And listen to what he says about who he is. Number one, I am humble. Wow. I am humble. The attitude of his heart. How did he serve? What's his attitude? He he serves, as we read, with all humility. He serves with all humility. Um, I I don't know. I would hesitate to say that about myself. Um, I think my friend who wrote the book on humility, why the way up is down, only by the encouragement of dozens and dozens of people to say, you are the man who can write a book on humility. Did he do it? Paul says, with all humility. Because Paul knows two things about himself. It's what Newton said later, John Newton. Paul knew that he was a miserable sinner, but he also knew that Jesus Christ, who he met on the road to Damascus, was an all-sufficient Savior. You don't think Paul was a sinner? Well, let's hear Paul in his own words. You know, in 1 Corinthians, he writes that he's the least of the apostles. 
In Ephesians, when he writes this church, he says, I'm the least of all the saints, but as his life and ministry are nearing the end, he writes to Timothy and he says, I'm the foremost of sinners. Only someone secure in Christ could say that. That's Paul with all humility and with tears. With tears we read. He served the Lord. He's the bondservant of the Lord. He's the Lord's slave with all humility and with tears. That was Jesus' attitude toward Jerusalem. Remember in Luke 13, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, he longed that they would not turn, that they would gather. It's Paul, when he writes the church, In Rome, which he's already written at this time. In Romans 9, Paul is so broken with tears and weeping in the heart over his fellow Jews that he wishes he himself could be cut off from the covenant, cut off from the mercy and grace of God so that his fellow Jews could be in a right and restored relationship. Jesus wept. When he saw the sin of the covenant people of God, Paul wept when he saw that indeed Jesus did come to his own, but his own did not receive him. With humility, with tears, and with trials, and notice the description of the trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Of course, Paul's going to have a hard time with the pagans. But that's not where scripture says his biggest challenge is. It's with his own people, the Jews. Think about the one Paul is following, Jesus. Who did he receive the most grief from? The prostitutes? The tax collectors? The sinners? No. His fellow Jews, in particular the Pharisees. And what did they do? Scripture records time and time again. They were conspiring to trick him, to trap him, to catch him in what he said so that they could show that he's a lawbreaker. Paul is following his master, Jesus. So he says, first of all, I am humble. Wow, only somebody that's really humble could say that. Think about it. But second, he says in verses 22 and 23, I am constrained. His heart and his life are constrained, constrained by the Spirit. He knows that he's not his own. He belongs to another, and the Spirit is directing and guiding him on this mission that's going to end up with suffering and affliction and his eventual death. Indeed, back in Acts, what is it, 9, where we read about Saul's conversion, he's told by Ananias how much he's going to have to suffer for the name. But he's constrained. He has no choice. He's bound, as it were, as we read in verses 22 and 23. He's he's going to Jerusalem. He's not knowing exactly what is going to happen, but it's going to be bad, humanly speaking. Imprisonment, afflictions. So he says about himself, I am humble and I am constrained. And thirdly, he says... I am innocent. I am innocent. And we see that in verse 26. 
Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. He ends his, this first part of his farewell speech with this declaration, I am innocent. Because he, like Ezekiel that we heard earlier, has been called to be a watchman, to give a warning. He tells the Ephesian elders, hey, I've been with you, I've lived with you, I've loved you, I've served you, I've proclaimed to you the word, the gospel. If you one day turn away, and we all know professing believers who turn away, he says, it's on you. It's not on me. I've done my job. You know, there are things that we should rightly feel guilty about, but Paul is saying there's other things that we should have no guilt about. Paul is saying, I'm innocent. I've done my job. Paul is a servant. He's a bondservant, a slave of the Lord. And we've considered the attitude of his service. It's, he's, he's, he's humble. He's constrained. And he knows himself to be innocent. Well, let's take a look now at the service itself. Paul says, remember me. Remember what I did. You know, it's almost like the first is the person of Paul, and now it's the work of Paul. And notice, what, his, what he did was all about the ministry of the word. Look at verse 20. I declared to you anything that was profitable. The ministry of the word. Again, I taught you in public and from house to house, in, in public, in the synagogue, in that lecture hall, and in private, house to house to house. There was large group ministry, small group ministry, one-on-one -on -one ministry, but it was all ministry of the word. And so, yes, on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday morning, here we all are gathered, and a spokesperson is speaking the word. But all of you have a ministry of the word. Because as we saw last week, when it comes to encouragement, it's filled, the content is the word of God. And the context is the people of God. Because the word of God cannot but point to Jesus, Lord and Savior. So he declares, he teaches. And notice in verse 21, he testifies both to Jews and to Greeks. And look at this testimony, verse 21 testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this isn't the first time we've heard repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And it's important to remember because we always think faith is a gift, and it is, but scripture also says that repentance is a gift, right? And what is it that leads people to repentance? Paul writes to the Roman church. It's God's kindness that leads people to repent. Do you all want a family member to come to faith in Jesus and know what you know? Do you all have a coworker that you desire could be in a living new relationship with Jesus. Show them how kind God is. 
Because Paul says it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And he ends this first part after he talks about being innocent. He says this, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So again, he's declaring, he's teaching, he's testifying, and he wraps up to say that I've declared to you the whole counsel of God. What a claim. You know, this is why consecutive expository preaching is so important. Now, all preaching, all proclamation of God's word should be expository, right? What's the message of the sermon? It's the message of the text. But consecutive expository preaching, week after week, going through a book, going through a letter, why is that important? Because everybody's got a hobby horse. Everybody's got a favorite topic, something, a soapbox. This helps prevent people like me and others from being on soapboxes and hobby horses. Why? Because we've got to work our way through God's word. I I heard years ago this great illustration. Are, are, Are topical sermons important at times? Yes, absolutely. But topical really says that the speaker's got to have the wisdom to bring everything in that could address that topic. He said it's almost like with topical preaching, you, the speaker, have the microphone and you ask God in his word, hey, what do you think about this? What does this say? What does that say? Whereas in consecutive preaching, it's as if God holds the microphone and says, this is what I want to say. Because there is going to be smooth scripture and there is going to be rough scripture. There's going to be scripture that convicts and there's going to be scripture that comforts. The whole counsel of God is an expression that can be abused. Why do I say that? Because it's taken out of context and there's no balance or attention. You know, some people reject God because they think he's too gentle. He's too easy. They can get away with anything. He lets you get away with anything. Other people reject God thinking that he's too harsh. He's too hard. You can't get away with anything. I've got to be perfect. And in one sense, yes, you do. We could have sung the Lord is King today. And verse 2 goes like this. The Lord is King who then will dare resist his will. Oh yeah, God is tough. Sin, sinners resist him. But how does it continue? Distrust his care. Have you ever thought that you sin? I sin when I distrust God's care, his love for me. When I doubt his love for me, I am sinning against God. The Lord is king who then will dare resist his will, distrust his care, or murmur at his wise decrees, or doubt his royal promises. Do you see the beauty of that verse? It captures it all. The whole counsel, to be sure, in the view of judgment, the watchman, yeah, Paul is not hesitant to declare that if you do not repent and believe, you will face the judgment of God. Absolutely. 
But if he's preaching the whole counsel of God, he'll also be preaching the mercy and the grace of God. Because justice and mercy, as we know, meet at the cross. So in this first part of his speech, Paul reveals the purpose of his life, the reason for why he is alive. He's talked, been talking about both his attitude and his actions. And in this speech, if you haven't picked it up yet, we're going to draw attention to it now. He reveals what's most important to him. Now, have you, some of you been part of a business or an organization where you know, the organization has a mission statement, but you, the employee, has to have a mission statement? Like, what's my purpose for being here? What am I called to do? Well, Paul says in this speech, remember me, remember the message I was given to proclaim. Because Paul's one overall desire, his aim, look with me at verse 24. He says, I don't count, I don't account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul wants to finish his race and complete his mission. And what is his mission? What is his purpose to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. There it is. It's what Paul said. It's what Luke recorded. And it's what God directed to them and what God has preserved for us. Let that sink in for a moment. The hymns that we chose to sing today are not random. They were chosen to support the theme and the text that we're looking at. And here it is. What is Paul's calling? What is his ministry? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now if we say that that's the purpose and mission of the Apostle Paul, it could by extension be the purpose and mission of all Christians, right? And the church... That being to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now that's not us coming up with a mission statement, no. It's rather God coming up with a mission statement for us. It's us believing and obeying God's word. Well, I want to break this statement down to its three components. Uh, the 3G network, as it were. What are we at, 5G now? This is the 3G network. Gospel, grace, God. Gospel, good news. Remember, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And even Mark before that says that what Jesus did is he went around proclaiming the gospel. He says that's what Jesus was doing and Jesus says that's what I'm doing. Grace. We've all heard this definition, unmerited favor given to sinners who rightly deserve his wrath. It's often that second part that's left off, unmerited favor to who? People like you and me. And what do we deserve? Not grace. No way. We deserve punishment. The wages of sin is death, right? Gospel, grace, and God. The gospel 
of the grace of God. You know, I hadn't even thought about this much until it's sitting in front of me for the past seven days. The gospel of the grace of God. I can't tell you how many people I know that say grace shows up in the New Testament when Jesus shows up. And it's then and there that we decide to have a little bit of an Old Testament study, right? I mean, God is gracious, and and unfortunately that word is, oh, she sets a gracious table. He's a gracious host. Well, God is gracious, is he not? Go back to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And then in the very next chapter, 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What does God say about himself? He's gracious. The Lord, what? Bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Numbers 26. In the Psalms, if you look up the word gracious, it's a declaration over and over again. God, you are gracious. And it's a plea. God, be gracious to me. And interestingly, I did a quick study. The word that's translated gracious is used six times as many times in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Go figure that. God's the same. He hasn't changed. So why should a church, why should a Christian emphasize the gospel of the grace of God? Why? Because God does. Because God does. Paul defends himself and his ministry by talking about himself, but he talks about himself so that he could draw the attention of his listeners then and to his readers now to someone else. He says, remember me so that you will never forget and always remember another man. And so as we conclude this brief exploration and examination of the first part of this farewell speech, let's direct our attention to that man. A man who says a few things. Like, remember me. Remember who I am. And this is who Jesus says he is. I am gentle and lowly in heart. It just so happens that I'm reading another book now along with saints, sufferers, and sinners called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And just as Paul opens wide his heart, the author of this book is saying that Jesus opens wide his heart and says this, if you want to know the heart of Jesus, I am gentle 
and lowly. So this man says, remember who I am. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And he also says, remember what I came to do. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in his trial, his interrogation before Pilate, Jesus said, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. In this trial, Jesus was questioned and he stated his purpose to bear witness to the truth, to bear witness to me. Not only remember me, remember who I am and remember what I came to do, but also remember my call to you. Not only at the time you met me, the time when you turned from sin and turned to me by faith, but also right here, right now. The call to repent and believe. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The call to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. Remember what he says, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus calls us to come to him and to rest in him. As we conclude, may Jesus have the last word. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are prone to wander and we are prone to forget. We are prone to forget who Jesus declares himself to be. Oh, Father, would you unstop our deaf ears today and may we hear the call to come to Jesus, to find rest, to find what we can obtain nowhere else in us or in the world, but only in Jesus. Father, we thank you that you have been pleased to give us this preserved summary of the Apostle Paul's mission purpose 
He could have said a lot of things, but you directed him to say this and you have preserved it for us to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Father, may we not just be a people that proclaim that, but may we be a people who believe that and rest in your kindness and in your grace that is truly unmeasured. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.